everybody. How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would probably benefit from a tagline. Sort of. I mean, the show would definitely benefit from a tagline, and gosh, after three years, you'd think I would have come up with one. Okay, just a quick peek behind the sausage factory here, uh, like, you know, the alley behind the sausage. Anyway, periodically, we will get people submitting potential taglines for the show, and a show that would probably benefit from a tagline is the tagline, so it's kind of a meta joke, so we don't actually need suggestions for taglines. I know it's not a great tagline, but it does technically have one, and, you know, like most jokes, it's better when it's exhaustively explained. But back to my earlier point, I was not saying sort of in reference to the show that would probably benefit from a tagline. I was saying sort of to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, because this is kind of a different episode. You see, a few weeks ago, Corey cashed in a lot of his Corey points in exchange for this magical token. Well, wouldn't you know it, turned out the token was cursed. And Corey accidentally put it in a vending machine and bought a can of Moxie with it. Well, by putting the cursed token in the vending machine, Corey did end up, a few seconds later, trapping himself in an alternate dimension. Fucking curses, am I right? Now, the good news is, the can of soda that he purchased is blessed. So, as he drinks that, the curse will be abated, and they'll kind of cancel each other out, and he'll get back to our dimension. The bad news is... Due to the curse, it's technically a can of Diet Moxie, which Corey really doesn't like. So it's going to take him a while to drink that. My guess is about a week. So he'll be back next week. But in the meantime, the episode that we're going to be presenting today is one that I recorded quite a while ago. It's me and Lisa talking about the Defenders appearance in Marvel Treasury Edition number 12 featuring Howard the Duck and the Defenders. I was originally going to release this as a bonus episode, but it fits in pretty well with the continuity that we're covering right now with the Defenders. This is around when it falls in the timeline. And with Corey being trapped in an alternate dimension this week, the timing worked out pretty well. But we are going to do an extra bonus episode this week. See, Lisa and I had so much fun recording this that she decided she wanted to read all of Howard the Duck. So, later on this week, we are going to post a bonus episode that is kind of a backdoor pilot. Not like the celebrated adult film franchise backdoor pilots. I mean, really, by the fourth movie, they were using mostly uh, recycled footage, which, you know, that's not what you paid for. But Lisa and I are going to start doing a once-a-month podcast covering Howard the Duck, the first episode will go up for free, and the rest will just be available for Patreon donors. So if you've been waiting for an opportunity to donate and you want to hear more about Howard the Duck, well, now would be a pretty good time. The new show is going to have a slightly different format than Tighten Up the Defense does, for reasons that I'll get into on that episode. Anyway, let's get into the rest of this show. Jeez, this much exposition up top, you'd... I think I was a supervillain. I'm, I'm not a supervillain, am I? Oh, geez. I've got a lot of thinking to do. Let me, let me try something out. Human fools! Well, that felt good. That, that felt a little bit too good. Um, 
Anyway, without any further ado, let's do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Brad Reed. These geese form a gaggle. These puppies a waggle. These bushes form copses. These words a synopsis. Thanks, Brad. Short, simple, to the point. Well done. Before I found that one in my inbox, I was about to come up with one on my own that would rhyme grist. And then that started me thinking about Miller's. And then I reread The Miller's Tale by Chaucer. And damn, that shit is crazy. You guys should reread The Miller's Tale. Canterbury Tales, pretty good one. Marvel Treasury Edition, number 12. Howard the Duck. January, 1976. The Duck and the Defenders. Written by Steve Gerber. Drotted by Sal Buscema. Inked by Klaus Janssen. Colored by Marie Severin. I didn't know she did that. Cool. And lettered by Joe Rosen. Defensive lineup. Doctor Strange. Valkyrie. The Incredible Hulk. Nighthawk. And featuring Howard the Duck and Beverly Switzler. Previously in Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck, an anthropomorphic, dimensionally displaced cigar-smoking duck, had been stranded on Earth ever since he teamed up with Man-Thing, an empathic shambling mound, and Korak, a mystical barbarian who lived in a jar of peanut butter, to fight an evil wizard. Since that day, Howard's life has only gotten stranger. The world-weary waterfowl met a young artist model named Beverly Switzer during a tussle with a different wizard, and the two became fast friends, traveling companions, and possibly more than platonic pals. Although due to certain social and biological complications, that last part is only hinted at. A series of misadventures led Howard stumbling into the position of presidential candidate as the nominee of the recently formed all-night party. Now, with the election fast approaching, Howard and Bev find themselves on an impromptu whistle-stop tour of the United States. Gadzooks! What are the odds that Howard will run afoul of yet another wizard? Would America ever elect a candidate as ridiculous as a talking duck? And, besides Korek, the peanut butter barbarian, will our poultry protagonist meet any other Marvel heroes entrapped by common foodstuffs? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... I don't have a calculator handy, but I would say 100%. Yes. And, well, in this issue, the Defenders get stuck in a giant magic box of shredded wheat, so I think that counts. A curiously costumed quartet of characters has convened around a campfire in Central Park. They start petulantly roasting marshmallows. That's an adverb you don't often get to ascribe to the first step in s'mores making, but it seems apt. The sullen snackers take turns introducing themselves, filling in their backstories, and describing their powers. Convenient. A man wearing a yellow bodysuit with a full face mask adorned with a black star introduces himself as Black Hole. He was playing handball when a grain of dwarf star material fell from space and got lodged in his chest. Now he can create a tiny black hole in his tummy, which hoovers in any nearby stuff. It is a power he accurately self-describes as gross. Next up is what appears to be a cringeworthy caricature of a Native American with a bullseye tattooed on his bare chest. He introduces himself as Sitting Bullseye. Yeah. Turns out he's a former CIA agent who attempted to infiltrate the American Indian movement by dressing himself up as a cringeworthy caricature of a Native American. Naturally, he was immediately discovered. The group he was attempting to go all Cointelpro on tattooed a bullseye on his chest and threw him out. Now he can't go undercover anymore. 
You know, unless he puts on a shirt, which I guess is something he's unwilling to do. Also, he likes to shoot arrows with those tiny suction cup tips for some reason. Then we move on to Tilly the Hun. She introduces herself as Tilly the Hun, and that's pretty much all the backstory we get for her. She's kind of a stockier, gruffer version of Valkyrie, I guess. She's got a big fur cloak and a giant morning star, which is kind of fun, and a swastika armband, which definitely isn't fun. Damn it! The Spanker is a former headmaster of an exclusive prep school who was fired for excessive corporal punishment. He wears a red spandex outfit with a yellow smiley face on the chest. He has a utility belt filled with a variety of paddles, and he likes to spank people. A lot. As soon as the crew of costumed creeps finishes their respective exposition dumps, some cops show up and tell them that they aren't allowed to have a campfire in Central Park. The villains take turn demonstrating their various powers on the police officers. Tilly bashes one with her spiky club, the spanker spanks one, Sitting Bullseye shoots one with a novelty arrow, and then Black Star slurps up all four cops into his magic tummy. Everyone agrees that that was a pretty gross thing to do. Suddenly, a fifth villain appears, strolling out from behind some shrubbery. The newcomer is dressed in a drab brown version of Doctor Strange's getup. He introduces himself as Dr. Angst, master of mundane mysticism. He reveals that it was he who assembled the D-minus roster of do-batters. He opines to his new compatriots that they're all shitty at being villains because they're cheap knockoffs of better characters. But he just got a job for them that ought to finally bump them up to the B-minus list. Or at least the C-minus list. You see, someone has hired him to assassinate the presidential candidate for the all-night party. Why, if I remember the gist of the previously on segment from a few minutes ago, that's Howard the Duck! Speaking of that misplaced in the multiverse misanthropic mallard, across town, Howard and Beverly are getting thrown out of the fancy Parkside Plaza Hotel. Like, literally thrown, the way Uncle Phil used to throw DJ Jazzy Jeff out of his Bel Air mansion. Although, it's a little less impressive, because Howard is significantly smaller than DJ Jazzy Jeff. It turns out that Howard and Beverly assumed the bill would be paid by the all-night party's PAC. Well, the all-night party figured that Howard would pay for it himself because he was running for president and therefore must be rich. Not an unreasonable assumption. Fortunately, Bev has some friends from high school who are now stewardesses and live in Greenwich Village. The destitute duo hop a turnstile and take the subway to the village. Seeing as how Bev is from out of town and Howard is from an alternate dimension, so, you know, really far out of town, the two end up getting understandably disoriented. Some kid named Peter Parker, who seems strangely familiar for some reason, and his girlfriend, Mary Jane, give them some shitty directions, and after a bit of wandering around, the confused couple end up knocking on the door of what they believe to be Bev's friend's house. Howard wonders if 177A Bleecker Street is the right address, seeing as the domicile on whose doorstep they find themselves seems a bit gothic, foreboding, and magical for the residents of two Cleveland-born stewardesses. Hmm, 177A Bleecker Street? Gothic, foreboding, and magical? Wait a minute! They must have accidentally arrived at the secret base of operations for... The Fantastic Four! Okay, fine, it's Stephen Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum. Hooray! After a few seconds of knocking, the door is answered by billionaire-do-well bird enthusiast Kyle Richmond, a.k.a. Nighthawk, decked out in his full crime-fighting regalia. Everyone involved in the door-answering situation is surprised at the results. Fortunately, 
Bev, Howard, and Kyle, are all pretty used to seeing some weird shit, so they get over it pretty quickly. Nighthawk ushers the unexpected guests into the apartment where they are greeted by the rest of the defenders. Meanwhile, across town, above a seedy movie theater, you know, the type that might be playing backdoor pilots, Dr. Angst is addressing the rest of those weird assholes from the beginning of the comic. He's like, Hey, you guys know how we're all derivative and sucky? Well, I found these weird little red balls at a garage sale. They're made from something called Prometheum, but not the Prometheum from the New Teen Titans, and also not the Prometheum that's an actual element. If we eat them, we'll be stronger and better at stuff. Everyone decides to follow Dr. Ank's advice and eat his balls. After doing so, they all feel great. The master of mundane mysticism gazes into his magic shoe and informs his callow compatriots that their assassination target, Howard the Duck, is hanging out with Dr. Strange. The drab diabolist goes on to offer that if they use their newfound enhanced abilities to mug Steve and take all his magic stuff, he could probably make them even less incompetent. They all enthusiastically agree that being less terrible at their villainy sounds like a pretty sweet deal. Back at the Sanctum Sanctimonious, Steve and Howard are having a private heart-to-heart. After filling in the sorcerer on his situation and backstory, Howard asks Strange if he would mind using his magical nonsense to zap him back to his home dimension. Steve is like, Probably. I mean, I usually work from the general assumption that I can do just about anything. I mean, I'm pretty great. But won't you miss Beverly? Howard responds, Yep, probably, but I'll get over it. Damn, Howard! You must be a shitty sparkling red wine that was popular in the 70s because you are a cold duck. Steve and Howard commence to start working on creating some kind of a portal to whisk Howard home without even telling Beverly that he's stepping out for a pack of interdimensional cigarettes. Then, and I say this knowing full well the nature of events I have described thus far, shit gets weird. Hooray! Steve is suddenly pelted from out of nowhere with a barrage of tennis balls and is knocked unconscious. Nighthawk goes to rush upstairs to check on his prestidigitating privileged pal, but finds his progress impeded by a white picket fence which has just appeared. Then without warning, Dr. Angst's now marginally less maladroit malcontents burst through the sanctum's window. Upstairs, Howard tries to flee through a different window, but his attempt at self-defenestration is thwarted because the entire building is now sealed in an enormous, presumably magic, box of shredded wheat. Hooray! A startled Howard is further surprised when Steve's astral form appears before him and says, Hey, so you know how I just got knocked out? Well, it turns out, just as that was happening, I was able to ghost up, but I can only do this for a couple of minutes for some reason. So I'm going to dump all of my magical powers into your body and link my mind with yours telepathically so that I can tell you how to do spells, and you're going to fight the bad guys for me. Cool. Oh, and also I'm going to use the last of my astral powers to dress you up in my clothes because, well, just because, I guess. Here we go. The now pajama and cape-clad canard rushes down the stairs, and at Steve's telepathic instructions, casts a spell which teleports both the defenders and most of the apartment-invading would-be assassins to Shea Stadium. Okay? Howard tries to ask Steve why the fuck he just did that, which is a reasonable question, but he gets no reply. It turns out that as soon as Steve finished dictating the teleportation instructions to Howard, 
Dr. Angst showed up and jammed a magic catcher's mask over the slumbering Sorcerer Supreme, preventing any further communication between the Conjurer and his poultry proxy. Now, isolated from both his allies and from any astral assistance, Howard squares off in a wizard duel against Dr. Angst. Over in Queens, much to the chagrin of the assembled Jets fans, the defenders and their foes have taken to the field and are tussling in the middle of Shea Stadium. For the most part, the good guys are having a pretty easy time of it. Even with their Prometheum-enhanced powers, the bad guys are still pretty shitty at their jobs. Nighthawk beats up the Spanker, Val punches the crud out of Sitting Bullseye, and the Hulk rips up the stadium's astroturf, which topples Tilly the Hun. Black Hole starts to use his gross powers to suck up all the defenders into his tummy, but Bev saves the day by sticking the dude's arm into his own ravenous tummy hole, causing the all-consuming Crumbum to seemingly suck himself out of existence. Hooray? Back at the Sanctum, our feathered friend is faring surprisingly well in his mystical melee with Dr. Angst, considering his lack of magic experience, but looks as though he will soon be overpowered. In a last-ditch effort, the wizarded-up waterfowl hurls Steve's cloak of levitation at Angst, ensnaring the enraged enchanter. Then Howard punches him in the face and knocks him out. Hooray! With Angst unconscious, Steve is able to wake himself up and remove the magic catcher's mask which had been impeding his intervention. Steve teleports everyone back to the Sanctum. He uses some of his regained magic to somehow make Black Hole puke up not only himself, but also the cops he consumed in the issue's opening pages. As the recently regurgitated officers arrest the vanquished villains, the Spanker laments that he and his teammates just wanted to get their hands on some more of that Prometheum so they wouldn't be so useless. When Steve hears this, he's like, Prometheum? That doesn't do shit. It's just a placebo, not unlike Mike's secret stuff in Space Jam, an inexplicably frequently referenced movie that will come out 20 years from now. Wow. So those guys had the power inside them to not be quite as shitty as they thought they were, but were still pretty shitty anyway, all along. Inspiring. Steve offers to get back to work on sending Howard home, but the dimensionally displaced duck can't bear to disappoint Bev. Aww. At least not while she's in the same room with him. He was more than willing to ditch her when he thought he could do it without having to say goodbye. So maybe a little less. Aww. Before collapsing into one of Steve's overstuffed leather armchairs, our web-footed warrior asked Doctor Strange if he and Beverly can borrow some money for bus fare. The end. Hey, if the bad guys are Team Looney Tunes in this Space Jam analogy, that makes the Defenders the Monstars. I wonder which one of them has the equivalent of Sean Bradley's talent. No, it's Nighthawk. Definitely Nighthawk. And joining us once again is my good for damn near everything wife, Lisa. Lisa, how's it going? It's great. Glad to hear it. So you recently joined us for the New Teen Titans miniseries, Tales of the Teen Titans. I did. And you were a bit disappointed that none of those issues could be necessarily characterized as a romp. Let's say I had issues with all of the issues. Let's not say that. <laughs> no, we can absolutely say that. So I promised you a romp. And so today we read Marvel Treasury Edition number 12, Howard the Duck, featuring his team up with the Defenders. Lisa, would you characterize it as a romp? It was a romp! I wanted to wear a romper, but instead I wore my <laughs> Howard the Duck shirt. <laughs> well done. So I think I have a kind of idea about this, but did you like it? 
It was so much fun. I loved it. I want to read the entire Howard the Duck run. Yeah, it was great and funny and engaging and I just, I loved it. And I thought there was a great point of entry with Howard and I really want to talk about his character. I'm very excited. Excellent. I'm very excited that you're very excited. Yeah, I loved this comic book. It was really bonkers fun. A really fun time capsule of the 70s in a way that really worked. So let's just dive in. What did you think of Howard the Duck? Uh, well, I mean, that's kind of a big shell to crack, or a big egg to crack, if you will. <laughs> You're going to keep doing this all episode, aren't you? I can tone it back if it's bugging you. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> I love that you had this point of entry that was so relatable. And so, like, if you were dropped into this world where superheroes were real, like, this is what you would, what would happen to you. And it was goofy and funny, but at the same time, He's a duck, so it's also just kind of bizarre. And, oh, man, it was so good. Yeah, that's one of the things I like about him best as a character and the way that I think he works the best is that despite the fact that he is a duck, he is almost always the most human character in any comic book that he appears in. And he's, like, thrust into these bizarre adventures, and he's like, yeah, wait, the Marvel Universe is goddamn crazy. <laughs> But that it's a talking cigar-smoking duck that is pointing this out makes it a little bit more fun, too. The other thing I really liked about him is how accepting he is of everything. He has fallen through, you know, many universes and ended up here. And he's just like, okay, well, I guess I better not be bored. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we and we can definitely get into the ways he decides to stave off boredom <laughs> in a little bit. Because there, there's some weird shit about that. But... Yeah, if there is a character that he reminds me of more than really any other character, it is Harvey Picard from American Splendor. Oh my gosh, yeah. And it's, I mean, that stuff, I think it maybe came out, started coming out concurrently or around the same time. But just the fact that they're both these kind of curmudgeons critiquing society as they wander around Cleveland and both have an intentionally iconoclastic viewpoint where they're eschewing both liberal paradigms and conservative paradigms. It's like the remnants of the 60s are kind of like playing out in these characters. Yeah, but one of the things about Howard is that he is definitely a flawed character and kind of a dick in a lot of ways. Like I actually wrote down in one of my notes, Howard the dick? <laughs> He's a really fun character who is an interesting way for Steve Gerber to just kind of wax philosophical about both the Marvel Universe and the regular universe well like the places that he spends his time <laughs> yes yes <laughs> and it's well it's just really interesting to bring him in dialogue with the defenders also because the defenders seem at least from my reading of it and i haven't read the entire series the same way that you guys have but their characters aren't quite as dynamic or quite as oh, they are often characterized as the dynamic <laughs> defenders <laughs> but i mean their their characterizations seem pretty set like, they have their set mores and values, and that's kind of what guides their mm -hmm. being and their the way they interact with the world. And with Howard, I feel like he's a little bit more malleable, and his self-interest mm -hmm. is really the guiding factor for what he does. Yeah. So I really appreciated seeing him in dialogue with these, like, kind of stodgy people. <laughs> yeah, with superheroes, yeah. with these kind of avatars of the Marvel Universe. So let's get into the story that happens in this we are introduced to four villains and then we meet the fifth i love the villains so much 
Let's just go through them real quick. Because, yeah, I did too. And even the things that were problematic about them made sense. All right, let's just get into Sitting Bullseye. Sitting Bullseye. Sitting Bullseye is a character who is an archer. So we already know he's going to be an asshole. <laughs> is that is that something that you've kind of... Well, you got Speedy, you got Hawkeye to a lesser extent, you got Green Arrow. It, it is kind of a comic book trope that if you shoot a bow and arrow, you're kind of a dick. <laughs> I don't think it's an intentional one, but it is one that I have noticed. I think part of it is that generally if you are a superhero who shoots a bow and arrow type thing... You are working with a lesser power set, so they go out of the way to make the characters seem cocky. Oh, gotcha. And then they just end up being assholes. Mm -hmm. Cocky is a hard one to pull off. Yeah, it is. You do it admirably, though. I try. <laughs> I really do. But Sitting Bullseye is a ex-CIA operative who was sent to infiltrate the American Indian movement and was immediately found out. And they tattooed a target on his chest, and then he lost his job with the CIA, and he goes around and shoots uh, bows and arrows, but with suction cups on the ends. Mm -hmm. I loved, when he was being introduced, he, like, started his story and just, like, was like, and then... <laughs> yeah, embittered eye, and then he gets cut, so cut off immediately. <laughs> but that's such, a, that's such a great way to describe somebody's personality also. It is, but it also, I like that idea of a character. I like the fact that it's kind of a demonization of Cointelpro, and that when I first saw him, I was like, oh shit, they're going to do a Native American stereotype. But they're doing a caricature of somebody who believes in Native American stereotypes, who, because he was such a racist jerk, was completely unable to do his job and thought, yeah, this is what Indians are, right? And I thought that was a really fun way to take a twist on that character. And yeah, it's just really goofy. And I love that he has like, he is a caricature of so many comic book tropes. There's the Archer character, there's the Native American stereotype. And I like that he's lampooning the stereotype rather than the Native Americans, which is an important distinction. Mm -hmm. But also, you have Bullseye, who has a bullseye on his target, and he's constantly pointing out, yes, it is in fact a real liability to have a literal target painted on me. And I can't wear a shirt. Well, how could he? <laughs> <laughs> we get Tilly the Hun. Mm -hmm. Probably my least favorite of the characters, honestly. I There's some stuff later that I would like to talk about with her and the Hulk's battle. It just seems kind of problematic and weird, and I didn't get, like, I feel like she wasn't fleshed out enough to understand... I think there is, well, her in entire introduction, when they all tell their backstories at the beginning, she just says, shut up, I'm Tilly the Hun. And then we move on to the next person. Yeah. She is a caricature of characters like Val to an extent. Yeah. But more so, there's a character named Thundra, who she is from a crazy dystopian parallel universe where women run things. Can you imagine such a thing? <laughs> <laughs> but she's super strong and everybody there thinks that men are weak and she's like a female chauvinist type mm, of character. Mm -hmm. And her whole thing is that she's obsessed with the thing because a strong man, he will be my mate. And so she... Oh, that makes a lot more sense with the battle with the Hulk later. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and there are actually a few characters. There's, I think, a DC character. I'm not sure when she was introduced, but named Maxima, who had a similar stance towards... Superman. So I think she's supposed to be a play on characters like that. But 
also steve gerber has some some shit about feminism that yeah i thought that that was what was playing out a little bit later so i'm glad that i'm yeah. glad to know that there's some truth and that, to that that may be what was playing out later but it may also be that that there's an out if you don't want to oh, believe gotcha. that <laughs> gotcha gotcha we have it can be both yeah exactly <laughs> we have a character named black hole who is got, he supposed to be like somebody? I thought I caught like a whiff of... There's a whiff of like Silver Surfer. Yeah. And then there's a bunch of different... He's just kind of... It seems familiar, but not. I can't think of a specific... I was thinking like Black Adam for some reason. Maybe it was just the costuming. I think that would be more Adam Warlock type character. Okay. But yeah, he has a few different things going on where... It's like, okay, uh, he's got the Dwarf Star, which is a thing from the Adam... Um, but yeah, there's all of these different elements to his character. (laughs) Or not. But mostly he is just a goofus. I don't know. This is the one aspect in which the art kind of maybe didn't do justice to it. Because overall, I thought the art was great. It was so good. It's Sal Buscema and inked by Klaus Janssen. And I want to talk about that more later, but it's really good. But he always describes his talent as being, or his power as being incredibly gross. And it kind of is, but it doesn't come across as super gross that he can just, like, create a black hole in his stomach. (laughs) Yes, he is ingesting people, but, like, it's not like he's actually opening his mouth and eating them. Mm -hmm. And so he he describes it many times and everyone describes it as being totally disgusting, but it doesn't really come across that way. Mm -hmm. I didn't think. I don't know what's happening when they're inside of him, though. Yeah, maybe that's, maybe they are being digested. It doesn't seem like they are because they do. Uh, Steve just kind of like forces him to upchuck everybody out of his <laughs> out of his chest at the end of the issue. But then we get to my second favorite character, the Spanker. The Spanker, man, I was like into it, but also a little confused, <laughs> which I think is kind of what that is. Um, I think he is pretty much a straight up parody of the Punisher. Oh my gosh. And that's why he's got, instead of a skull on his he chest, he's got a smiley face. face. And he carries a paddle and then has a toy gun that he carries around. Uh, and yeah, he's a former headmaster who was fired for spanking his pupils too much. But yeah, he cracked me up. He was His character was so funny. And the stuff that he said about learning from the liberal parents of his, of his students. Yeah. <laughs> like, he was just great. Yeah, he was terrific. And then we get... My absolute favorite character, Dr. Angst, master of the mundane. I loved him so much. He was so funny, so weird, so, like, just the amount of puns that he had. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, real quick, what was your favorite pun that he had? Um, Okay, it's on page 14, and he's talking about... That's what drove me to establish my citadel of mundane magic in this dingy apartment over a seedy massage parlor in the most squalid section of the degenerate of this degenerate city. It keeps me in touch with reality, as do the terrestrial talismans upon my altar, my yucca ritz. <laughs> His yucca ritz crackers. Yeah, that was my favorite. I think. And my all-seeing ice. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty good. But I love the idea that he is the master of the mundane. And that, like, he makes a mystical barrier that's a white picket fence. (laughs) And he seals up the sanctum sanctimonious in a giant box of Nabisco shredded wheat. Or he has Doctor Strange pelted with tennis balls. 
it's just really fun. It's a really fun take, and, like, Dr. Angst instead of Dr. Strange, and instead of Strange, he's mundane, and... I think we would call it a foil. Yeah, and a very effective one. A foil that was also just, like, completely lampooning Doctor Strange, though. And yeah. I loved I loved that part of this book, I think, in general, is, like, bringing into stark relief how silly some of the, you know, ongoing seriousness of the series is. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. And the artwork is, I think, part of why that works. And I mentioned that the inker is Klaus Janssen, and he's known for, like, more film noir type stuff. Mm. And it really comes across in this issue. Sal Buscema does the pencils, and he does all of the Defender stuff that we've seen so far, pretty much after the first couple of issues. I think Ross Andrew did one. But for the regular series, it's all been Buscema. So the characters look the way that they're supposed to look. And Klaus Janssen has worked on a few issues of the book, but he always brings, like, a darker, more dramatic, almost gothic tone to it. And when you have that juxtaposed with the absolute madcap silliness of this issue... It works so very, very well. Yeah, I really, one of the things, I mean, I thought it was maybe just reading the Treasury Edition versus reading the regular sized was how detailed the artwork was mm -hmm. and how much, like the bolder lines is really part of what I saw. And uh, the contrast and shading was just like so on point. Yeah. It really did change the tone a little bit and, you know, made the less, it brought into stark relief some of the less exciting <laughs> Right. Of the book. Right. I liked that the book had a Space Jam ending. What's the Space Jam ending? Uh, the fact that the power was inside them all along. <laughs> they just need. There was nothing magic about Mike's special stuff. But Space Jam for the bad guys. Yeah, yeah. They they were they were really monsters from the beginning. <laughs> I never watched that movie. You know that, right? I only watched it a few years ago, and I did not care for it, frankly. <laughs> but you love that song. It's the best song. The song Hit Em High from the Space Jam soundtrack is legitimately, possibly my favorite song. No, The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh is actually legitimately your favorite song. Probably. Anti Up by M.O.P. is really rising in the ranks lately, I though. I know, I know. I know what our Spotify playlist is. <laughs> <laughs> You cannot listen to The Fish That Saves Pittsburgh on Spotify. It Spotify, you're now publicly available. Please, please fix this problem. Yeah, The Fish That Saves Pittsburgh is a wonderful song. Um, one thing I really wanted to talk a little bit about that we haven't touched on is New York in the 70s mm -hmm. and the characterization that you kind of see in this issue. You know, in a lot of ways, New York City is like the sixth character in the book. <laughs> Sorry. For our radio friends out there, I was giving him a look. <laughs> yeah, a justified one. Um, no, the, the way that New York is depicted in the 70s in the book is really interesting. And I actually haven't spent that much time in New York. What were your specific thoughts on it? Well, actually, that's when my parents, my, both my parents are from New York, and that's when mm -hmm. they lived there. So um, my thoughts were like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and and I, I like, I, you know, movies like The Warriors and kind of having some sort of sense of what what life was like there then. Um, the main thing that I the main thing that I made a note about was when Beverly is saying that everyone looks like Al Pacino. And I was like, <laughs> so is everyone like vaguely ethnic in an unthreatening way? Is that what's going on? <laughs> At that point, I suppose it was still possible to associate Al Pacino with non-threatening. <laughs> Well, they did say everyone looked like a deranged killer like a minute later. So maybe right. it was after the So maybe the taxi that was, driver. yeah, that was De Niro. 
Oh, what was Scarface? Was that Al Pacino? That Scarface was Al Pacino. It didn't but, come out until the eighties. Yeah. The Godfather is probably his biggest. <laughs> role. What's that movie about? <laughs> um, I don't know. Parenting, I guess. <laughs> it's probably about religion, mostly. Yeah, religion and parenting, mostly. Uh, Dog Day Afternoon. Oh, I love uh, that movie. That was yeah, great. Yeah, I don't know if that was out. This came out in January of 76, so I'm a little bit rusty on what happened exactly when in the 70s. Uh, that was actually something that I was kind of curious about at a couple of points, because you mentioned the Warriors, and when they talked about just riding the subway from Con- to Coney Island oh, and yeah. back the whole time, I was wondering if that was referring to the Warriors, but I... I know it was around then. Well, I also, I'm pretty sure, and you may correct me if I'm wrong, but Coney Island's one of the last stops. Yeah, so, so, yeah. you, so you ride at Coney Island and back and just like, that's something that you can do with your time if you're homeless. Yeah. Or a duck and a young lady who have just been kicked out of a hotel because, and this is one of the commentaries in it that I enjoyed, the, he has been made the presidential candidate for the all-night party at this point. Mm-hmm. And... That was a storyline that was happening in the regular Howard the Duck series. Uh, And there were actually pretty popular uh, Howard the Duck for President t-shirts and buttons that were being circulated at the time. I want one. Do you want one? Yeah, of course I do. Let's do it. Okay. But it gave Steve Gerber a chance to lampoon politics as they were happening. And uh, 76 was a pretty good year for that. (laughs) Almost as good as 2016. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway... That was the all-night party, and he gets to make the comment that, or Beverly does, I guess, that, oh, they probably just assumed you were rich. After all, you have to be rich. How else could you afford to run for president? And it's just a nice little social commentary that got dropped in there real quick. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like the more, and I want to read more Howard the Duck, uh, I think that would be so much fun. Well, that's something that, as you were reading this, I was, I had told you, it's like, we're going to cover the Defender story in here, and that is all we're focusing on, but you just read the whole issue. <laughs> like, you were t- started taking notes, and then I was like, oh, yeah, we're just doing the Defender story. You're like, I know, but now I'm on the reprint of Howard the Duck's first appearance, and then the first issue of Howard the Duck. The art is so... I mean, everything about it is so engaging. Yeah, what was your favorite of the non-Defender stories that was in Oh, I mean, I loved how his bad guys so the first the first bad guy you encounter with him i think so he was he was you tell me a little bit about the history i think he was started in man thing yep and then did a couple issues through man thing and then the third the third issue that was in this reprint was the first appearance of his own book right yeah okay gotcha so i think my favorite was there was just something very sweet about him trying to save the city of cleveland from the um vampiric cow the Hell Cow was my favorite story. Yeah. It's so good. I mean, I liked the one that had the frog in it too, the death frog. Yeah. I believe those were both backups in Man-Thing and various, I think they were both, uh, appeared in Giant Size Man-Thing, which... <laughs> That's the best name for a treasury edition. <laughs> it really is. It's, yeah. The, those weren't the treasury ones. Those were the Giant Size issues, so it literally just said Giant Size Man-Thing in big letters on the front. Yeah, having a having a series called Man Thing is one thing, but once you add the size description in there, it's a little bit more. It's appealing. (laughs) 
but yeah, the the hell cow story. It's a cow that was bitten by Dracula years ago and then became a vampire and killed farmers. Because she was such good friends with her farmer friend in Switzerland, Sweden. Uh-huh, that he couldn't stand to eat her after she had been drained, so she was buried and then she rose from the dead. Oh. Bessie. Um, Bessie. Bessie the Swedish cow she who became s- hell cow. <laughs> she had such a sad story. But such a beautiful cape. <laughs> It was really good. That was my favorite part of it, is that she shows up in this giant full-length Dracula cape, and a farmer is just like, oh, nice cow with a fancy cape like that. Somebody's got to be missing you. I'll just put you in the barn. And then she turns into a vampire and eats him. (laughs) So good. So it's, well, and that's the whole thing that I loved about this character and, like, this, I don't, is it, like, tone? Is it, like, what is, just... The whole thrust of this series and this character, I think, is like, everything's kind of silly. Everything's kind of silly, but it is also played kind of straight. Yeah, well, the stakes are the same. Yeah. I think, and stakes get uh-huh. it there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. A couple of ways, yeah. Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. But yeah, there's that. There's also just like the fact that for a humorous comic book, it is dark off the bat. His very first issue of the comic book is starts with him deciding that he's going to commit suicide. And seeing a tall tower and being like, well, I guess I can jump off of that. Mm-hmm. And then that's the launch to this crazy story about a mystical accountant who... But all of it is played like, okay, let's accept what's happening right now. Right. Let's go with this for a minute. Let's accept what's happening right now. Let's go with this. It's just like a, like, he's like the Zen, the the cynical Zen monk. (laughs) The cynical Zen monk Harvey Picard (laughs) talking cigar smoking duck of the Marvel Universe. I think that's fair. Yeah. I think that's an accurate description. want to get onto the minutiae now or is there anything else you want to discuss before we do i'm sure other issues will come up as we go through it oh i just i want to read more so we'll do that okay okay i do have the full run of howard the duck we can read it um and i will say honestly it's not all as good as this and it gets more problematic as he is more of a mouthpiece for steve gerber spouting Mm. his own philosophies because some of those philosophies are not that great this was great though yes thank you for giving me a romp Anytime. <laughs> Anytime, except for the times when we have to cover the new Teen Titans <laughs> and okay. their sad origins. Their sad and problematic origins. Yes. Okay, Rick, would you sing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Lisa, what would you like to hit up first? I think we should start with best panel. Okay, what was your favorite panel in the issue? So many good ones. The art was so beautiful, but on page eight. That's what I named as my favorite panel. Okay. Because it was my first introduction to Howard the Duck. It's when he's being tossed out of the the fancy Parkside Plaza Hotel. And the very best part of this scene is that guy, the little dog, who is a poodle, who looks real angry. <laughs> yeah, he's, he is a yapping poodle who is very upset. I It seems as though the poodle is upset that such riffraff as Howard the Duck was ever allowed into the Parkside Plaza Hotel. 
But yeah, no, it's a really nice depiction of the dog. There's a lot going on in the scene that's great. He and Bev are literally being thrown out of the revolving door. Like, perhaps one of the hotel employees is Uncle Phil from The Fresh Prince. Because, <laughs> yeah, they are being straight up DJ Jazzy Jeffed out the door. And it is a really nice scene. Well done. So I had a couple to choose from. I decided to go with some of the smaller moments in the issue. There is one on page 20 which we discussed briefly, where the entire Sanctum Sanctimonious has been encased (laughs) in an enormous box of shredded wheat, and it's just great. They are stuck in a mystical cardboard box. It's just really funny, and it's a well-drawn box of shredded wheat, and it really cracked me up, in part because you can see on the side of the box it says spoon size. (laughs) But my absolute favorite panel is a very small moment that is on page four, and it is Black Hole trying to put a marshmallow in his mouth and (laughs) realizing that he doesn't have a mouth and just jamming a toasted marshmallow into the front of his face mask and then looking at it in dismay. It really cracks me up. I love that the way that the the, the mundane supervillains get together is around marsh, a marshmallow roast in Central Park. And that that proves to be their undoing to an extent because the sh- cops show up and are like, hey, guys, you can't do that. But then it's okay because uh, the black hole uses his gross power. To suck them all into his chest. Mm-hmm. You wanted to move on to best words? I need to know. I know how I think something is said. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to perform that for you. But I would also like to know how you think something is said. Okay. So I think the best words, because I am newly enamored of Howard the Duck. Yes. Are. Yes. I think that is an accurate rendition of the word. I see it as kind of a Lucy Ricardo crying type of thing. <laughs> can you can you demonstrate that? I mean, hers is more of a <laughs> But uh, But uh, yeah, I see Howard the Duck as being a. Oh, because he's also a duck. Yes. <laughs> but that is a kind of his signature catchphrase sound effect thing. Yeah. So that was your favorite? Well, I had like 5,000 favorite yeah, words because it was so good. Let's go through some of them. Okay. That was very good. <laughs> One of the things I wanted, I wanted there to be a bozone for this because there I... There are some really good oh. put downs in it. Uh, are you talking about the one that he delivers to Nighthawk? Yes. <laughs> That was really, really good. He does a couple of zingers on Nighthawk. Well, I mean, it's so easy. Let's just take a look at those. Well, I like. I think Howard the Duck also feels about some of the Defenders the way that I feel about them. And it seems as though Steve Gerber does, too. Yeah. Uh, like, he takes Steve to task for being so Steve. And Steve is written at, like, Steve turned up to 11 in this, which I also just love. But yeah, when Howard the Duck first shows up at the door of the Sanctum, Nighthawk answers the door and says, you're a duck. And Howard's response is, chortle. No offense, pal, but you're hardly in a position to criticize. (laughs) And then he goes on to describe him as, don't think I'm scared, Buster, by you. He's talking to Doctor Strange. The green guy or the sword lady or that wacko with a case of feather envy. Which in all fairness, that might actually be Nighthawk's entire problem. It could be. Or his secret origin. Feather envy. (laughs) I enjoyed both of those. I really loved, you already delivered the speech uh, involving the euchre 
Eucharitz. Oh, gosh. The Eucharitz crackers. So very nice. I really loved the interplay that I mentioned already between Stephen Strange and Howard the Duck when he is being given the tour. And I said Steve was being turned up to 11. He said he needed to talk to Howard for a second. And then he just starts giving him a tour of all of the, here are all of the nice things that I have. <laughs> and these are pre-Diluvian sculptures culled from... And Howard interrupts and says, uh, not to interrupt, Doc, but for a sorcerer, you're sort of loose-tongued, aren't you? Most guys in your profession are pretty secretive, unless they want something. True. I like that characterization of Howard and of Steve. Howard's whole thing is that he's very much an everyman or in every duck, but his superpower is almost his keen observations about the human condition. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I think that the... And pragmatism. Yeah, I think that the, the reason that he's so such a wonderful character is he is both relatable, but also obviously there's something wrong. Obviously he doesn't fit in, so people reading comic books might appreciate that. I think that there is something about kind of feeling othered in yourself that he really depicts well and yeah. like visually and you know through his characterization i think it's beautiful yeah and how what would happen if a real person how would they react to being in the marvel universe mm -hmm. and that real person happens to be a duck a duck that looks at this point you were mentioned you mentioned that you were wearing a howard the duck shirt in your howard the duck shirt he's drawn the way he started being drawn in the late 70s, early 80s, really almost around when the movie came out. Before then, he looked so much more like Donald Duck, like and Donald he was Duck. supposed to look like Donald Duck. And then I think there were perhaps some concerns. I don't know if they actually got brought up by Disney. I suspect that they did as Howard grew more popular. Mm -hmm. But he's a very, very Donald Duck looking character, and I, I like him a lot. I do have some more favorite words. Okay, let's get at them. Did you finish your favorite words? Sort of. As you said, there were so many. I, I think my absolute favorites were the put-downs of Nighthawk. But there is one more I want to get to. Let's get okay. into yours first. So on page 27, we're going through the battle uh, with the... What's his name again? Dr. Angst, Master of the Mundane. Dr. Angst, Master of the Mundane. And he says, I can whisk away the web with the broom of Wazoom! <laughs> the most banal spell of all! <laughs> I love the Broom of Wazoom. The Broom of Wazoom's really fun. It is, I believe, supposed to be a reference to Doctor Strange's frequently used spell, the Wand of Watoom. <laughs> and yeah, he is a great parody of Doctor Strange and a great inverse of Doctor Strange. And then I have one more on okay. this page. Howard has successfully trapped Doctor Angst. And he is like trapped in the cape and Howard the Duck is ready to, you know end it all and he says just you keep floating right there while i deliver the punchline." <laughs> oh yep and then he delivers some two-fisted justice <laughs> or a punch yes a punch <laughs> i also we referenced it very briefly but when the spanker is fighting the cops who show up to bust them he says i learned also from the lily-livered liberal parents of my students I learned that if justice is to triumph, a man must sometimes take the law into his own hands and over his knee. And then he spanks a cop. <laughs> and 
that was great. Well, knowing and that And I think that might be my favorite. Yeah, I think that knowing that he is such a parody of the Punisher, too, like, that is so good. Yeah. That is so good. Really nice stuff. Let's go to sartorially speaking, which, speaking of sections that there's a lot to talk about, a lot of fashion to comment on in this issue. Really? I found that there was. Okay, well, let's start with you then, because I, I didn't find very much that I was like, ooh. Well, my absolute favorite is, of course, on... The back cover oh, yes. of the issue, the Hulk has a patch sewn on to his unintentional jorts that says, Get down, America! Which I believe is the slogan for the all-night party and Howard the Duck's campaign slogan. But I loved a big yellow patch sewn onto the butt of the Hulk's uh, trunks. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed that. We talked a little bit already about the outfits that the bad guys are wearing. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And specifically the spankers That was what uniform. I, one, one of the things I had written down was the spankers smiley face. Which the smiley face was a pretty new and very current thing right oh, then. Oh, that's right. I also want to talk about Howard the Duck's look a little bit, which I like that he wears a tiny little hat on his head. So one of the other things about his characterization to me was he was very like hard-boiled kind of flat foot in a uh-huh. way like especially reading the later stories i was like oh this is kind of like reading something or watching a movie uh, or reading like one of a those... dashiell hammett type yeah thing, or... like just totally 30s i'm tough yeah he had kind of a mike hammer almost aspect to him that i enjoyed mostly you liked his hat though yeah mostly i liked <laughs> that he had a little tiny hat <laughs> oh says a little hat and it must be especially small because he's like three feet tall and he's got a pretty small head. So to have a hat that's that small on him would have been so much easier for him to get a regular hat. But I thought it was a pretty good look. Well, he also probably is like very mindful of his appearance being a presidential candidate. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Indeed. I think my favorite outfit in the entire thing, though, was Dr. Angst. His outfit, oh. <laughs> which was a all brown version of Dr. Strange's <laughs> outfit with no patterns on it or anything. And then his his belt was a rope just like to try to make it as drab as possible a version of dr strange's outfit (laughs) i think was just such a smart choice and i really really liked it he was the best character i think i mean Uh aside from howard howard was great yes i loved that in terms of style of the times on page eight we're along with my favorite panel i love the rich old lady in the kind of mini skirt with her dog that matched her her fur Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought that was just a really nice detail really thoughtfully done it was also I liked that they threw in a Spider-Man cameo yeah which, but just like out of uniform and both of the Spider-Man cameos the one in this and the one that was so cynically but intentionally cynically used in the Howard the Duck first issue mm-hmm. where I think on the cover of it they have a tiny little figure of Spider-Man and was like in this gratuitous cameo by Spider-Man <laughs> Because both of them kind of were, but I also like that it just, it really does set the like, nope, this is New York and the Marvel Universe in 1976. Yeah. This is a real Marvel comic that this is happening. (laughs) This is real, guys. Come on. This is canonical. (laughs) Was there any other fashion you wanted to talk about? No, not really. I mean, if we're going through the whole issue, then definitely Hellcow's cape. And well, and there's more to talk about with Bev's initial outfit, but we can... Hellcow's cape, I think, is a fair place to stop. I also think that Bev's boobs are very pointy. That's it. (laughs) 
I mean, that was kind of like the style of the times. It was the style of the times to have pointy boobs. Dude, it totally was, though. You can get bras nowadays that make your boobs pointier. Maybe I will. <laughs> what was your favorite sound effect in the issue? This was the one that I had the easiest time choosing. There's there so was a many. clear front runner. There were a ton of really good ones. What was your favorite? Okay, I have two. Okay, go for it. What was that? More of a Wookiee sound. Oh, the noise that Howard the Duck makes? Yeah, also, thaka thaka thaka. Thaka 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 was my favorite. Oh, was it really? Of Steve getting pelted with tennis balls. (laughs) You look so joyful right now. Because it reminded me of him just being pelted with tennis balls and also then later that he was kept out of the fight by having a mystical catcher's mitt placed over his face. (laughs) It's very funny. It was very good. It also reminded me of another weird comic book moment that's from a very different comic book that was called Beowulf, which was a comic book that was played not at all for laughs. And this was a moment of levity that I think they thought no one would notice. But there was a character in it who made a spell that I believe summoned Grendel or did something like that. Uh, But there was a sorceress. It was set back in Beowulf times. So like whenever they use Middle English. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was a character whose spell was mystically intoning the words tennis anyone but spelled backwards oh no i was like you know i'm gonna read that shit backwards <laughs> like you know or whatever it's like yeah of course i'm reading that backwards and it just it reminded me of that and i was like huh that was a really fun time back in the terrible comic book beowulf number three <laughs> i love you somebody's got to <laughs> Yeah, that was my favorite sound effect. Mm-hmm. Thaka, thaka, thaka. Thaka, thaka, thaka. Okay, now we're getting down to the nit and the grit of the situation. What character just had to be a sucker? Who had to act contrary to their previously established character or motivation in a way that furthered the plot? Much like the fat boys mm-hmm. in the movie Crush Groove. Who Probably. just had to be a sucker? <laughs> Probably the Hulk. Yeah, how was the Hulk a sucker? He didn't. Issue? He didn't beat up Tilly the Hun. Yes, ideas of chivalry are perhaps not the thing that one would initially associate with the Hulk. Yeah, I mean, like I know he has a sweetness to him, but I also think that it wouldn't necessarily matter that it was a lady who was punching him. If somebody's hitting him, he yes, he will hit back because he is a rage monster. <laughs> I yeah, mean, come on. Yeah, I did like that. He just looked really confused and upset by the situation. <laughs> But yeah, I think that's fair. I enjoyed that. Although she was also saying like, and then if you defeat me, then we're going to get married. <laughs> and he's like, well, I don't want either of these things to happen. What? what? What's happening? <laughs> and I can identify with that. Oh, sorry. No, no, baby. I didn't defeat you in battle. That's not how we became engaged. Is it? Do I not remember defeating you in battle? You're very wiry. Let's I don't think I would on. be able to. <laughs> I decided to go with Nighthawk because he was pretty cool in this issue. (laughs) Like, he went and answered the door for Wong. That's not major. That's not not something I would associate with Kyle. And then he he had kind of a sense of humor about himself throughout. When Howard was making fun of him, he took it with aplomb. He was kind of charming when he saw that it was Howard the Duck at the door. He was like, Steve, it's probably for you. (laughs) 
And he was very clever and pragmatic in when Black Hole had been reduced to a giant hole. He was just like, uh, Bev, you probably shouldn't touch that. It's, we deal with a bunch of weird stuff, and this seems like one of the weird stuff that we deal with. So, uh, maybe just let us handle this yeah. part. But, yeah. like, not in a dickish way. He didn't sexually harass anybody in this whole episode. <laughs> and there was a new female character who he met for the first time. So, just didn't seem like Kyle. You're very wise to the ways of the comic book. Thank you. Who was the best defender? And who was the worst offender? Which one do you want to start with? I think my worst offender was the Hulk. Okay. Again, for that same reason, he should have done something. Except that he did. Like, he, it was oh, he, he pulled who up pulled up the AstroTurf and then ended up kind of defeating everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, fine. At least momentarily. Who was but your worst still... offender? I decided to go with Steve. Oh, why? He got KO'd pretty early on, and we have seen that when he's in astral form, he can still do most of his magic, but, he but instead conscious. he just kind of deferred. He wasn't conscious, but he could still send out his conscious form. I know they tried to explain it. It just seemed like garbage. garbage. <laughs> and the other thing, and this is not so out of character for him, but his lack of understanding where Howard had asked him to send him back to his own universe mm. without letting anybody know about it. He's like, this is private. I need to talk to you about it. And then at the end, Howard's like, so can you send me back? And Steve is like, yeah, sure. But let me first gather everyone here into the same room. Mm. He said that? I'm paraphrasing very slightly, but wah, nope. Sorry. No dice. Uh-uh. Just get me out of this smock and send me home. Oh, I recall And then Steve time. goes... In a moment after I recall our comrades, whom I sense have also met with success this day. So he knows that they're not in any danger. Mm -hmm. He knows that they were successful. And he still does that, which, I mean, it furthers, it, it's almost a sucker moment, I guess. Because it does further things. It allows Howard to stay in this dimension because he doesn't want to hurt Bev's feelings to her face. He just wanted to run out for a quart of milk and never come back. Uh, which, that's something that, that... Does it irk you? A little bit. I considered Howard for that, but he actually did a really good job of thwarting the master of the mundane with his unique blend of pragmatism and borrowed sorceress might. Mm -hmm. But I understand, and, and, and it's one of the things that I like about Howard the Duck is that he is a flawed and self-interested character, but it was also that he's like, yeah, I mean, Bev's a nice kid, but I'm just killing time with her mm -hmm. and with his run for president thing. I just don't want to get bored while I'm stuck in this dimension. But yeah, I totally want to go home and want to not want to do it without saying bye to anybody. I get that, though. I get it, too, but it's still a dick move. Mm -hmm. Who did you have for the best defender? Does it have to be a defender? Well, that's the thing. The defender's rule, not unlike the free bird rule. Anybody who's fighting alongside the defenders is, I think, at least an honorary defender because it's not a technical team. They always describe themselves as a non-team, but a loose collective of heroes. So, pretty much anybody's up for grabs. It, they do have to be a good guy. I was going to say Dr. Angst. <laughs> okay, no. It can't, it can't be one of the bad guys. But Dr. Angst was pretty much the best. He was great. He was great. I agree. I'll let you think of your backup. Well, well it was Howard. Okay. Yeah, Howard. I think that is a fair choice. He does a good job. Well, he was just, I mean, he was so charming and quick on his feet and, uh -huh. you know, self-interested in a way that made sense to me. Very good. I decided to go with Beverly. I could see that. I thought she did a really good job. She put up with a lot of shit 
had a good attitude about everything, and also she defeated the one member of the group of bad guys that was actually a legitimate threat, it seemed like. Uh, Black Hole by grabbing his arm and sticking it inside of his armhole chest until he just bloop collapsed in on himself into a little portable hole. Yeah. Which I thought was pretty good. Hold on. Do you think they got the idea of the holes from that seminal Beatles movie, The Yellow Submarine? Possibly. I loved that. Okay. I've never seen The Yellow Submarine. Really? No. The Blue Meanie scared the shit out of me when I was a kid, like nightmares. I'm sorry. It's okay. My parents should not have shown that to a, like a five-year-old. <laughs> You're talking to a guy who watched Videodrome <laughs> when he was 10. <laughs> uh, did you want to watch that or something recently? Yeah, I think I'm going to have to for another podcast that I'm going to be a guest on. <sighs> I'll watch it with you. I appreciate that. Thank you. I'll make you You're some, very brave. I'll make you some dinner and you can hide your head in my bosom. Mm, and my gun in my own stomach. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so I chose Beverly. <laughs> Understandable. She seems pretty cool. I get, are there, is there like a romantic relationship between him, her and Howard? It is always kept a little bit vague, but kinda. Yeah. I just felt like maybe they're just really good friends. I think that would make more sense, but they do hint at there being a something going on between them. Both in terms of them both being jealous of each other at various times. Yeah. And there are a couple of scenes like where they're taking bubble baths together and shit. So yeah, I think it's, it's kind of implied. Mm, okay. But it's also left a little bit vague, so we will see. Well, shit, is that all of the categories? That is it. Except for Wong Walks on the Beach. <laughs> so, in the year of our Lord, 1976, and the month of our Lord, January, how did Wong spend his Wong Walks on the Beach? <laughs> what was he up to? Well... You know Wong has spent a long time around the Mystic Arts. A long time around a the Mystic Arts. A long time around the Mystic Arts. I did indeed know that. So in this time, he's developed a kind of quaint hobby. Oh yeah, what's that? Yeah, he's an amateur ghost hunter. I don't know if you knew that. I was unaware. Yeah, yeah. He's been kind of puttering around the world of, you know, ghost hunting. Um, and it's it was pretty, I think, I don't really know very much about it, but Wong does. Oh yeah. Um, and it felt pretty nascent to me in the 1970s. But in late January of 1976, he was well-known in amateur circles, and he was tapped. Oh, yes? Yeah, he was tapped to investigate a seemingly run-of-the-mill haunting in Long Island. Oh. Amityville, Long Island. Amityville? Amityville. <laughs> uh, because in January of 76, the people who purchased... I think their name is the Lucases. They purchased the Amityville uh, house that mm. was later in, you know, made into films and, and books. Of the Amityville uh, horror? Of the Amityville horror. And they had moved out. Like, they jetted uh -huh. um, in mid-January 1976. And they called Wong in to investigate. Yeah. Well, I mean, he kind of knew, you know, he, he had dabbled and, like, he knew a little bit more about the multi-dimension part of it. Sure. So he was part of a little cadre who got in there and, and sussed things out for Very a preliminary nice. investigation. Very nice. Uh-huh. I'm pretty proud of that one. As well you should be. <laughs> well, that may have been one of Wong's hobbies that he had picked up over the years through his associations with the mystical arts. Another one was that he had developed a bit of a taste for a certain strong Jamaican incense, which was referenced <laughs> in previous issues. And he would occasionally like to partake of this strong Jamaican incense and watch some television. <laughs> 
one of his favorite things to do after partaking was to kind of just zone out on the NBC peacock when it showed up on the screen. <laughs> Be like, what's that bird thinking? What's his deal? But in January of 1976, NBC decided to change their logo from the iconic peacock to this weird N made out of parallelograms. And Wong was like, what the fuck? <laughs> no, no, you know what? I'm switching channels over to ABC, which he did, and then watched the premiere issue of Laverne and Shirley, oh. which he really enjoyed. That song is a great song. It's a very good song. And he also ended up watching the premiere episode of The Bionic Woman. Oh. So, overall, he wasn't that upset. But he was relieved several years later when they brought back his peacock friend <laughs> to the NBC family in 1979. <laughs> and that was how Wong spent his metaphoric Wong walk on the beach. <laughs> that was January of 1976. Very nice. It was and this was very nice. Thank you so much for joining us, Lisa. Oh, this it was, was a my, lovely time. It was my extreme pleasure, and I love Howard the Duck. Glad to hear it. Right now. I might eventually not like him as much, but that's okay. You never know. Relationships change. It's true. They do. They evolve over time. Uh-huh. But our relationship with you will never change from one of love and admiration, dear listeners. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. If you would like to leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play. Podcatchers. All the podcatchers. Any of your podcatchers. Well, we'd sure appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, just, you know, tell a friend or whatever. We're also up on Facebook. We're on Twitter at ttwasteland underscore. And we're all up in the internets in all of its nooks and internet crannies. Yeah, and if you'd like to donate some money, you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. I know that I would really appreciate that. Yeah, thanks for joining us, and we will be back soonish. Hey, listeners, this is Present Day Hub. Boy, pastime Lisa and Hub sure did say some things, didn't they? <laughs> that was fun. But one of the things that pastime Hub should have said, but forgot to... And so now, present time hub is having to put right that which once went wrong, is that if you would like to learn more about Howard the Duck, visit your local library. And also, check out friend of the show Osvaldo Oyola's page, The Middle Spaces, where he has a series of posts called, If It Was Like a Duck, in which he compares the old Steve Gerber Howard the Duck series to the newer Chip Zdarsky series. Uh, it's a great read, and if you're interested in Howard the Duck, you should definitely check it out. And then go on and read the rest of the stuff on the page, because it's all pretty dang good. Also, stay tuned later this week. We're going to drop in this feed the first episode of me and Lisa's new Howard the Duck podcast that is called What the Duck, a podcast most foul. We're going to be doing an episode of that every month. The first one's going to be free, like we're drug dealers, but then after that, you know, once you're hooked on our podcast skag, then uh, it's going to be only available for Patreon donors. So if you'd like to hear more of it, then maybe drop us some money on Patreon. If not, just continue listening to the free Tighten Up the Defense show that is going to continue coming out every week. So uh, I think that's all the housekeeping stuff. Uh, stay tuned. I'll talk to you later this week. Thanks, guys. Why don't you take it from here, Past Hub and Lisa? Goodbye. Bye. Wow.